When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is the Fed going to break the global economy? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With us today, Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets. Hi, Brent. Hey, how are you, Maggie? I'm doing well, uh, as well as can be expected, given everything that's going on. But but we were just chatting right before we came on, and I was expressing fatigue. And you know, I think a lot. That's what a lot of people who are are feeling, who've been watching the markets and watching their you know, hard-earned retirement wither away. Um, but you're energized because this is like the ultimate macro environment. And this is what you guys do. I mean, it is one of the best macro environments ever. And I can remember sitting there, like say in summer 2014, when nothing was going on, every central bank was at zero. You know, people were literally quitting because there was nothing to trade. Um, and I mean, this is the polar opposite of this, of that. There's just so much going on. I mean, like I said to you, I'll probably collapse by the, when I get home, but there's a lot of adrenaline when a lot of stuff is going on like this. And just in specifically in FX, there's tons going on. But then, of course, like geopolitics and everything else, there's just so much happening. Yeah, there really is. And, and you know, I think that's really important because, because you know, two things. Um, this exact reason is why Real Vision exists, because there are folks like you who have the experience, who've traded through crisis, who understand all these really complex things. It's a rich environment for you. And then there's the rest of us, which are just like our heads on a swivel. We're trying to figure out what's going on. People are semi freaking out about it or their concerns, even people with a fair amount of knowledge. We had a New York meetup last night, which was awesome. Thanks to all of you who came, Carolyn and Anya included. It was so great to see everybody. Um, but you know, they were like, listen, it's, it's really hard. And some people are coming at it from the crypto point of view. Some people are coming at it from traditional stock investing. And they're like, wait a minute, there's just, there's just a lot happening right now. And I, and I really need to understand that. So we appreciate folks like you have so much experience coming on and, you know, trying to help us all make sense of it. Um, sure. And, and, you know, like you, I referenced, you really have been through it. You were, were twice lucky this week because you're on the podcast, uh, this episode of My Life in Four Trades mm -hmm. uh, with Andreas, um, who, who filled in for me. And, um, man, you, man you've, you've seen it, right? The global financial crisis, um, 2018. I mean, you, you, you've traded through all of these. What, what's top of mind for you as we look at stocks? We ended the week. We ended the quarter. Horrible for stocks. We have mm -hmm. energy down sharply crazy volatility in foreign exchange, um, surprisingly crypto hanging in there a little bit. But, you know, what do you, when you pull the lens back a little bit, what's top of mind for you? Sure. So just one point that you made is interesting that this is one of the few times that uh, crypto traders are jealous of uh, G10 FX traders. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right. Uh, so I think there's a big distinction that you have to make um, because you were listing, you know, different people that watch Real Vision and different people that you met up with at the meetup. And so when you're long only or you're generally like fully invested this environment is obviously feels much different than if you're a macro trader who's you know as a macro trader you can be long or short you don't you're not really constrained right like the that's the beauty and the kind of the fun of of macro trading is it's generally very unconstrained or completely unconstrained 
Um, so really what you want as a macro trader is volatility. Um, and I tend to look at the world. I look at the big picture, but then I tend to trade a little bit more short term. So what I'm looking for generally is volatility and, and for something to be going on. And now there's just so many things going on. And I, I think a skill is to be able to identify kind of what matters and what doesn't. And so right now there's a lot of feedback loops that are all operating through kind of a, similar channels where the dollar's going up, yields are going up, Europe's in crisis. And there's a lot of interactions between all these themes. Um, but at some time, you will focus more on one specific theme like the UK, or you'll focus on a specific thing like Nord Stream. But generally, individual themes like that don't really matter that much unless they're linked to the broader theme, which you know, the broader theme now is rising dollar and terms of trade and energy crisis in Europe. And those things are all pretty tightly tied together. Yeah. And, and you know, every day we try to frame the discussion by asking a question, you know, that that seems relevant or that might help guide our thinking. And I think that's why we settled on is the Fed breaking the, the global economy. And I want to we use we throw that word breaking around. I, I just I, I want to dissect that a little bit and start mm -hmm. broadly and then we can work down and I, i'd like to do that by starting with a clip from a conversation between um, michael nicoletas and michael cow about the fed let's have a listen to that i think one of the biggest factors right now is um you know this this notion of interest rate differentials i think the key question that everybody needs to ask and i don't have the answer to this in terms of when the us dollar wrecking ball is going to stop wrecking the key question is what other countries and geographies have economies that are strong enough to allow their central banks to outhawk the fed and from right now i'm really not seeing many alternative or many many countries that can that can boast that claim. And that full interview is part of our Make or Break series that's available right now on our website. Um, and Brent, I think this is this is the point with the dollar, right? And it's setting up this tension uh, that that seems to be making its way into everything, which is can the Fed bring down inflation without causing financial instability? Um, that uh, that attempt to bring down inflation by hiking rates is strengthening the dollar so much. It seems to be having all these repercussions. How are you thinking about this? So I think the primary channel is still rates, not the dollar. So I think the dollar is more of a symptom. Um, so to answer the question, can they do it without breaking something? I mean, I think the answer is almost certainly no. Uh, that's kind of almost the intent, right, is to to keep hiking until things start to break. And I think a big mistake that people have been making, um, especially investors, not and I wouldn't say traders as much in this cycle, is that there's this Pavlovian buy the dip kind of mentality that's been, you know, it's paid off that that's been the bet to make since 2010. So anytime you see AAII um, sentiment is very bearish, you know, a large move up in the VIX, basically any kind of sentiment indicator has worked very well from 2010 to 2020 in the era of, of quantitative easing. But then if you think about, okay, like 2008 was the last real bear market. We're 14 years from there. If you start your career when you're 22 or so, that means no one under the age of around 36 has really seen a real bear market because 2020, that was not a real bear market. <laughs> um, that was like a flash crash. Um, 
So I think what we're still working on here is people, many people have the wrong framework of thinking about a Fed pivot or the Fed put. There is no Fed put when inflation's at 5%, 6%. Yes, there could be one down the road. And so like pricing in cuts to late 2023 or something like that isn't, isn't unreasonable. But buying stocks because you think the Fed's going to pivot with inflation at five, five and a half percent. And I think a really important feature of that inflation is that if you look at like, to me, one of the best measures is the Atlanta sticky inflation measure. So it, it takes its core. So it takes out um, commodities like oil and gas and food. And it also takes out shelter, which I think is really important because it's a widely known thing that the measure that they use for, for owner's equivalent rent basically lags house prices by like 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much useless. It's like looking at the unemployment rate when you can look at claims and claims always move about six to 12 months before the unemployment rate. So there, there's a big aspect of inflation that is lagging because of measurement effects. But if you strip all of that out, you know, the Atlanta sticky X shelter number is just like this straight up and it's, it hasn't come down at all. Um, and the Fed knows this, of course. So with sticky inflation, um, there's no buy the dip, in my opinion, to, to happen until you actually see the whites of the eyes of the economy. And, and they, I mean, the Fed's been clear about that, right? They want unemployment higher. And look at what claims are doing. Claims are going down 191 this week. So if anything, the jobs market is, is doing shockingly well still yeah. um, for a bunch of reasons. So to me, stocks will keep going down and the dollar will keep going up until you see evidence of, first, it usually will start with the market. So credit breaking, um, you could argue that the UK guilt market might be a symptom of, of tightening financial conditions. Um, so you'll start to see those kind of things. But really, because the Fed looks so bad and so behind the curve in terms of when they finally change policy, they're probably now going to make the same mistake on the other side and stay tight for too long in an attempt to save face and maintain the institution's credibility because they've lost so much credibility with the transitory narrative and then the front running the programs like Kaplan being like resigning and the other guys resigning. Um, the Fed has lost so much credibility that I think now they're going to overcompensate you know, like when that the insecure kid on the schoolyard is the one that like acts the toughest. Yeah. I think that's what the Fed's going to be like now is because they've lost a little bit of self-confidence or, or a credibility and they need to reestablish it by probably now staying too tight for too long after decades of being too loose for too long. Can they do that? So when we talk about things breaking, just to be clear, we're talking about either the economy slowing down dramatically, high unemployment, people losing their jobs, you know, corporate profits lowering, or something more serious where uh, firms fail, uh, you know, a bank fails. I mean, you know, that's certainly the, the horribly the scale we saw in 2008, you know, massive firms going under and all this counterparty risk. So, you know, it runs the gamut, but we're talking about some something having to do with that. Can the Fed continue to stay on that inflation path if they see that sort of dislocation. And maybe we can focus on the UK and what happened there, because I can't help think that you get moves like that and then it doesn't reverberate through the entire global financial system. What are you looking at in the UK based on what we saw? Well, the UK is a unique situation because what they're trying to do is kind of like what the US did in 2017, which is 
detach revenue from spending, you know, tax cuts and more spending at the same time was kind of the feature of, of the TCGA in 2017. And it's really the first time that deficits went up at the peak of the cycle of the economic cycle. Like the normal theory is you, you increase deficits at the lows because you want to prime the pump of the economy and you reduce deficits at the highs when things are going well because tax receipts are strong and you don't have to spend as much into the economy. So the U.S. did did the opposite and kept on spending in 2017. But the U.S. got away with it at that time because rates were still basically essentially zero. So now the U.K. is trying to do the same trick, but they're not a reserve currency really the way, obviously not the way that the U.S. is. Um, they have a bigger, generally a, je a bigger deficit on, on most measures of like current account and net investment and, and things like that. So they don't have as much money supporting the, the, the spending um, and rates are skyrocketing. So the cost of servicing new debt looking forward is going to be much, much higher. So it's not a free lunch. Essentially, like the reason that MMT, uh, modern monetary theory, kind of gained a lot of momentum in in pre and post, especially post COVID, is that interest rates were so low that you can spend any amount of money you want and borrow whatever you want when rates are zero, right? But as soon as rates are going to three, four, five percent, then it becomes much more difficult. So in the UK, you have it's really like the classic bond vigilante situation where people just don't won't buy the bonds. So you're saying, okay, Bank of England is sell, was selling bonds into the market was about to for quantitative tightening. And we're going to issue whatever X 50, 100 billion of, of new gilts over, you know, Y amount of time. And essentially the buyer said, no, we, we're not going to buy those. Turning into a spiral where um, the UK pension funds become more and more unfunded or more and more un not unfunded, but, you know, somewhat semi unfunded mm. as gilts go down, inflation goes up. So their liabilities are increasing because some of them are are adjusted for inflation. So their liabilities are going up, their assets are going down. Like this is the biggest drawdown if you look at a 60-40 bond equity portfolio in forever. So it, they started reaching a point where they were at hitting margin calls. So then you had like the UK pension funds who should be the buyer of last resort were actually selling in the hole. And so what ended up happening was the Bank of England, first of all, had to say, okay, not, not only are we not gonna sell gilts and to tighten policy, but we're actually going to buy unlimited amounts um, in the market as a backstop. So that's kind of typical, like as your original question kind of was getting to, like, where do you see the signs of breakage? People, I don't think generally always are good at forecasting that. Like the economy usually breaks later. So mm -hmm. you'll see, I mean, my guess would be some of the sovereign stuff like that will continue where people will get nervous, um, even in the U.S. Treasury market at some point. And then also you'll start to see a lot of bankruptcies of unprofitable malinvestment tech companies like, um, you know, the ARC kind of favorites that were all that stuff where all that money was invested at the highs in 2021 into unprofitable companies that will not be able to roll their debt. So like, I don't know if I can single out a company. I'm, I don't, I'm not a stock analyst, but right. I'm just saying like Carvana would be an example of a company that borrowed a lot of money and one day they're going to have to roll it and they're going to have a lot of difficulty rolling it. So they'll, I, I would think that the, the breakage that people are talking about will begin in the corporate credit market 
Um, and we began with bankruptcies of unprofitable um, SPACy, you know, IPO companies that mostly wouldn't have ever been financed in a normal world, but were getting, you know, unlimited financing in, in 2021. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I, I think this is so helpful the way you're laying it out. Um, and we're, we're, we're going to tie it up and get to some questions and some specifics. But, you know, under that scenario, can that sort of trouble? And by the way, um, you know, one of my colleagues pointed out that um, and it's in some articles, you know, the UK, the average mortgage, unlike here in the US, where it tends to be fixed for 30 years, is what, mm. like two or three years. So you're going to have this massive rollover of people who have these mortgage rates that are really low, but are going to have to roll it into something that's exponentially higher. So, so that's the, a huge problem. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the real the real human damage that's going to come to the UK economy from that is almost hard to wrap your head around. Um, with that looming and with the bankruptcies that you're talking about looming, you know, you can sit here and say on Friday, okay, well, it's been a bad quarter for US stocks, but, you know, a lot of the bad stuff that's happening is in the UK or is someplace else. Does this, does this sort of, seep into the global financial system, you know, is it walled off, walled or off, or does this come to, to us companies, to us stocks, to, you know, Swiss, I mean, everywhere, it's not just specific. Is that something you worry about? Yeah, absolutely. Because really you, you, most of the last 20 years, you've had two or three engines of growth. You either had like Europe was always kind of okay, but never great, but very often you had China doing really well. Um, and you had the U.S. doing well, and then Europe and Japan would kind of be like fumbling along in the middle. And right now, really, it's just the U.S. And you make an interesting point about the housing is that if you look at like by by country, the U.S. is one of the few places where that won't be a problem. There's just a lot more long term, like 30 year mortgages and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but places like Australia and Canada, it's hard to get the exact data because variable and fixed can be the same thing if it's just a two-year fixed mortgage, right? <laughs> that's not yeah. that's not helping you all that much. It, it's protecting you. If you got it a year ago, you got 12 months more protection. So there's going to be a lot of that, which will be a, another real income shock to Canadians, Australians, New Zealand, Spain. Um, so you're going to have the energy shock in Europe and the UK, and then the, this mortgage reset shock, which is a little bit not as much of a one-time shock because it's rolling, right? Like say 20% of, if on average people have five-year mortgage in the UK, then 20% of them are going to roll off each year. So it's kind of this rolling shock. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of lot of negative things around the world. Um, China's in a completely different part of the cycle. And so the US is somewhat insulated in some ways, like the US consumer is strong because it delevered in 08. Most of the world never did, right? Canada never delevered in the in, in 08. Um, the U.S. is sheltered from the housing reset for a long time, um, and mostly the the large U.S. corporations are super cash rich, the the big tech and all that. So there's an insulation that the U.S. has, and that's part of why the dollar's outperforming because currencies are always about you know A versus B, 
And if A is the dollar and B is anything else, it's hard to find a B that's better than A right now. Um, and so there's some insulation for the U.S., but I mean, the U.S. won't be immune. There, the, most of the U.S., a lot of the U.S. market cap comes from multinationals. And, and I mean, even like Microsoft and Apple and those companies um, are highly reliant on global demand. So um, I've got to ask this question that just went in because, um, Paul, I feel you. Uh, Paul E. from our site, does anybody have any good news to report? If so, please share it <laughs> immediately. Um, but I, I think it's a good uh, question for you, Brent, because you're an opportunist. Macro traders are for opportunists. So let's let's reverse this. Is there anything you like here? So, I mean, the good news is that the U.S. economy is still actually doing pretty well. The job market's doing well. And all these shocks, like even the foreign mortgage shocks and all that, are somewhat less extreme when you have a job, right? Like even if my mortgage payment doubles, if I'm still employed, I'm probably going to be able to scrape through. The real trouble comes when unemployment goes up. So I think the good news so far is that this isn't, um, you know, like a, a major economic collapse. What it is is more like, central banks attempting to engineer a soft landing. And that's just like, it's so difficult to do that barely anyone believes they can do it. But I mean, the good news is, I guess, I suppose is that it's possible. Um, I mean, the good news, I suppose, is that commodities have come off a lot. So, you know, gas prices and that are not as bad. Uh, I wouldn't say that, like I would compare right now a lot more, you had mentioned 08, but I would compare it a lot more to 01 than 08. Um, sorry, I guess the, the best news is probably that there's not that much leverage in the system as well. So what you have is more like a traditional bear market where companies go bankrupt and you know, there'll be unemployment, un unemployment will go up, but it doesn't have as much of the feel of like a, a credit crisis or like, so you could argue that the guilt thing and all that could lead to some kind of sovereign debt crisis. But the thing is the G10 central banks can just intervene and, and the, you know, no matter how many guilts everyone wants to sell, the bank of England can just buy them all and monetize all the debt. And yeah, there'll be unintended consequences, but the sovereign debt crisis in G10 to me is just basically not a thing. It's they can always, they, they can competitively devalue the currencies and print currencies and, and that will have impacts. But they, they're not going to default. G10 economies are not going to default. They'll just print. So, but the problem with that is that that if that's the solution to a sovereign debt crisis, that's inflationary. So then you're not really solving the inflation yeah. problem. Yeah, this is where this is where it gets tricky. But that's a great great point about you know the ability for them to handle this as opposed to when it's in an emerging market where you know it, it, they're more constrained uh, as to the levers they have. So, would you be a buyer of U.S. stocks here? Uh, no. So I, I don't think until we see actual breakage, essentially, I think when when unemployment goes up, not dramatically, but when it goes up to, say, 5%, then the Fed will have reached the accomplished their goal. And then there'll be some consideration of, you know, it's time to dip your toe in the water. I think if I'm not mistaken, it, it, like if you use 01 as your an analog, I think the Fed had cut like 10 times before the before we made the low in October 2002. Mm -hmm. So if you picture like a traditional bear market, um, people are used to like 08, 
and 2020 where it's just like an outright collapse and then massive intervention and then a v-shaped thing but look at a chart of of the 01 bear market it's just like a grinding grinding slow boring like despair filled <laughs> uh bear market and i think we're going to get more like that just like rolling series of bankruptcies and layoffs and slowly unemployment will go up eventually that will release the pressure on inflation and then the fed can settle down and stop hiking and to me that like i i would say that's probably a story for like a year from now kind of thing mm -hmm. and but that doesn't mean we need to lop another 40 percent off the s p just the the last leg of of that kind of bear market is just like a grinding despair filled year of that like kind of what crypto is experiencing now right where it's not really going down it's just nothing's happening and that that i think is how this will end is more like the fed accomplishes their mission inflation goes back to say three three and a half or something i don't think it'll go all the way back down to two before they back off and then slowly but surely everyone will kind of look up and go like whoo glad that's over but I, I don't think it's close to over yet I remember that horrible grind uh, <laughs> sideways, um, Brent, as well. Um, and, and that's a fantastic point. Nick Lee asking, what are the odds the dollar two-year, 30-year have peaked? So that's kind of been the game that everyone's been playing since, honestly, since February. Is like, if you Google like peak Fed, peak rates, peak yields, um, that's a thing that people have been trying to to play for a long time and I, I just don't really see any evidence of it of why right now um and i think that what would convince me would be that the sticky inflation components or like the the widespreadness which is not a word but the the widespreadness of of inflation starts to back off um because i think one of the main reasons that people thought peak two-year and, and peak dollar was happening a while ago i would say like april or so was that commodities were backing off and look at where commodities are like nymex crudes below 80 it was at 130 and inflation still hasn't really come down all that much um now of course there's base effects and that'll start to impact inflation more dramatically like in february march once you're a year past the war but right now i think there's just way too much sticky inflation for for rates to back off what about um Ralph asking, what do you see for the yuan? I know that you've been looking at that. You sent over some charts. I don't know if we're going to be able to get them up because um, as usual, uh, the signal's uh, kind of crapping out on us, although we're fine. But if we put it up, we may, that extra paperclip may break the system. But um, yeah. but what do you uh, what do you see for the yuan? Sure. So I can kind of describe the chart. So essentially- We'll link them in the chat, by the way, after. Go ahead, Brent. Sure. So I, I think the the PBOC has a lot of credibility on the on the intervention front. Um, they don't have unlimited credibility because they kind of lost control in 2015, um, but they do have a lot of credibility. So I, I think they're going to stabilize it here. Um, so even if the dollar continues to rally against G10, I think China has kind of reached a point, and I mean they've made clear statements about this that. They don't want further China weak, further yuan weakness at this point. Usually, what that means is they enforce stability for a while, and then either macroeconomic conditions change and and the currency starts strengthening again, or they slowly let it go again. So the I, my view is that they keep it stable into year end, and then honestly beyond that, I think it really depends on 
where macro conditions are in in 2023. Um, but for now, it really has been following G10 to some extent and and the interest rate differential, which has gone from you know a big advantage for China to now a big advantage for the U.S. And I, I don't see that rate differential story changing, which is the main driver, I think. So you have a combination of kind of up, upward pressure on the dollar from the whole dollar story and yields, and then a little bit of downward pressure on dollar China because the People's Bank of China will be selling dollars to, to support it. So to me, that creates a stalemate around here. And I think that stalemate is probably enforced till the end of the year. Mm. Uh, uh, is this it asking, uh, I'm assuming Brent's not buying the dip on the S&P 500. He may have come in or she may have come in late to the conversation. And you, you, you were talking about this being maybe a prolonged sideways bear market, not the kind of V we're used to. But are there tradable rallies in that, especially given the fact that you tend to be more short term and tactical? Yes, definitely there are um, tradable rallies, but I don't think we're in that kind of setup right now. In fact, that little rally that we just had weirdly relieved a lot of the bearishness. So one thing, I think a mistake that a lot of people have been making on the sort of institutional side is overweighting sentiment and positioning because that has been really important in a, in a mean reverting market where economic and financial volatility is low. Then you tend to see like, when positions get stretched, they bounce back. But in a very important macro environment like 01, 08, during Abenomics and dollar yen, the trend is much, much stronger than the positioning. And so people are a little bit obsessed with the bearish positioning in, in equities. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, it's more reminiscent of 01 or 08 where people were just bearish all the way down. So I, I, I'm definitely not in the buy the dip camp. And I think, the you know the frequency of questions that I get on that shows how Pavlovian it is, and until that's kind of like beaten out of the system, um, which to me is like a VIX to fifty kind of thing, where where you get a true capitulation. I, I don't think that you buy these dips. Um, you know, yes, there are some tactical opportunities for sure, but I don't think this is it. I don't think this is one right now. In fact, I think we're kind of on the edge of breaking all the big levels, which is like. 1587 in S&Ps and 11,000 in NASDAQ, you know, look like they're both going to break early next week. So uh, personally, definitely not buying the dip. Mm. I, I was just doing a deep dive on the VIX for something we were doing on TikTok. And I didn't realize it got, did it get up to 89 in the pandemic at that like terrible moment in the pandemic? Did it get up that high? That just seems extraordinary given where it's been sitting lately. It did. I think also in that February, 2018, when the structured yeah. products blew up, I think it got to 82 or something as well. Um, good reference, right? It gives you an idea I, of where it can go. Based yeah, on where I have now. to say, deep dive on the VIX for a TikTok is not something that you would have heard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, the deep dive was to do a, a very surface thing on TikTok. <laughs> were, not exactly, but you're right. I mean, this is the That's world funny. we're living in, right? You can find us there too. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Um, awesome. Jason from the RV site, you made me laugh, Brent. Jason from the RV site is asking, and this is a great one. Great questions today, guys. Is there any asset to reside in other than cash? If you have a good basis in inflationary assets, do you sell now to buy lower or stand pat? Subjective, of course. Brent doesn't know your risk tolerance, your time horizon, all that kind of good stuff. But generally, Brent, any thoughts on that? So, yeah, that's a great question. And that's a question that we get a lot from clients because there kind of is no safe haven right now, right? Like the US dollar, you can say is a safe haven, the Swiss franc, but you know, you normally bonds would be a safe haven. Gold maybe sometimes is a safe haven, sometimes it's not. Um, but really nothing, nothing's acting as a safe haven. So to me, uh, I mean, the safe haven is to be short futures, but, um, but I, I would say that I, in terms of inflation protection and all that too, a lot of the things that people thought were going to protect them from inflation have not either. So um, the problem with most inflation protection is that it protects you from loose policy that's causing inflation. But when policy starts to tighten, then those things don't protect you, right? So like people thought Bitcoin was an inflation hedge. It kind of was a hedge for loose policy. But as soon as policy starts to tighten, then you get hurt. So uh, things like gold, um, which are also sometimes viewed as as safe havens or inflation protection, I just don't think they'll work um, until the Fed backs off. So it's kind of like sometimes people call it the blob, like everything is just this one big blob. If I wake up on, well, today's Friday, but <laughs> if it was not Friday and I woke up tomorrow and, and saw where Aussie dollars trading, I can basically tell you where like S&Ps are trading. I could probably tell you where Tesla's trading. You know, it's there's in times of risk aversion, everything becomes this huge blob. And in the past, it used to be fixed income that was giving you a hedge, but obviously not in times of inflation. So if you look back on the 70s, there's not a lot that's going to protect you at this, this point in the cycle. And I think it's better to have as much cash as possible to deploy when you, know, when you feel like I think generally the the crazy thing about capitulation is you know it when you see it, but usually you're capitulating too because you know you're a lot of times capitulation's happening when people are losing their jobs and all that. So mm -hmm. no matter how rational you are, if you're losing your job, you're capitulating because you gotta pay, you know, you gotta pay your whatever your debts or whatever. So having cash in moments of capitulation is is a really powerful thing. And we're certainly not at that moment yet. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I think we've all felt that in the past, right? You sort of intuitively know you wish you could take advantage of the situation, but it's just, you can't look into the future and you've got to worry about the here and now, which for most mm. people is putting a roof over their head and making sure their family's taken care of. I'm going to squeeze a couple more in because they're so good and, and you're just amazing, Brent. Steve from YouTube, which emerging market will outperform Brazil, I would say will emerging market outperform. And very interestingly, we saw, I think I saw a chart somewhere today for the quarter that like only two things were up against the dollar. And I think it was the Brazilian real and the Mexican peso. I don't, I don't know if that's accurate. I don't have it in front of me, but are you looking at emerging markets at all? Is there opportunity or given the risk, the global risk out there to dicey? So that's a really interesting point is that this is the first cycle, uh, first sort of heavy tightening cycle where the dollar went up and EM generally did okay. Like obviously there's exceptions. Um, Asia has done poorly and Turkey has done poorly, but LATAM has done very well. And to me, it kind of makes sense. Like they're running a little bit more orthodox policies with less debt. Um, they didn't go as nuts during COVID stimulus wise. 
Um, Brazil, the only thing is there's an election. I'm actually going there on Sunday for the election um, for the first round. So the Brazil is there's like a lot of idiosyncratic risk there. Um, but Mexico, especially when you adjust for carry, um, has done incredibly well um, in a raging dollar bull environment. So I think to me that speaks to there's a concept of, of bad news, good price, where you, you some asset keeps getting hit with bad news and it won't go down. Mm. Then at some point, if the news kind of just turns to neutral, that asset will rally. And I feel like Mexican peso is like a perfect example of that. I mean, it all the conditions for Mexico for Mexico to sell off have have been enforced for at least whatever six eight months, and the peso is just super strong. So. I think part of it is money coming out of Asia and going into LATAM, but then part of it is high real rates and orthodox policy and, and markets have, there's so much unorthodox policy where like revenue and spending have, have become totally decoupled that people like the places that seem less radical, I guess. Yeah, it's it's, it's completely that. flips the script on what we've seen in the past, does, right? And yeah, I know with your yeah. long history, Brent, you know that. Yeah. Um. Last question is uh, there's uh, someone I don't know where it went now, but asking about uh, about Bitcoin. The the fact that we're entering possibly sort of in, you know a, an equity winter, um, if not a macro winter, probably better to say equity winter and this sort of long slide so sideways. Um, does that mean that crypto comes out of it it's long depressed state, or can that does that also just continue to bang along the levels we're seeing here. How do you see yeah. that? Yeah, so that's something I've written a lot about is that one of the most negative things for crypto has been institution institutional adoption. Um, so it was supposed to be the big bull narrative, right? Was like Wall Street adopting crypto and all that. And to me, it's actually been a huge negative because what it's ended up happening, what it's, what it's created is just very high correlation between crypto and and other risky assets in TradFi. And so then it doesn't have any diversification properties, but it still has some weird regulatory risk and it's a pain in the ass to, for custody and you know for institutions. And there's like other idiosyncratic things that are annoying about, about crypto. So if it's gonna just go up and down with the NASDAQ, that makes it much less attractive. My view on crypto in general is kind of like I was alluding to earlier is that it's an incredible high beta hedge against loose monetary policy or crazy fiscal monetary combo. Um, but it's, you know, obviously then the opposite of that is tight fiscal or tight monetary policy means that crypto is going to go down. And so I would right now just lump it in with everything else and say that, you know, whatever you think about where the NASDAQ's going, that's probably where crypto's going for a while. Um, and many of the many of the investors and the narratives were similar too, right? Like the Web three disruption stuff. You know that was pushing Arc up just the same as it was pushing Solana up. Um, so I feel like there were so many similarities, and the investor base was very similar. That that unwind is now similar, and I do think like in the next cycle, like I want to be accumulating crypto over like a two year period. Then you have like around 2024, you have the next halving in Bitcoin. Um, and you also probably are going to see like the end of this cycle sometime in 23. So longer term, I like accumulating, like people like to say DCA or what at dollar cost averaging in crypto. Mm. To me, that makes sense. 
because when the thing turns, it's it's going to be the highest beta again. Um, but I just feel like you have to be able to just sit there and say, like, literally 18 months from now, Bitcoin could be 19,367 where it is right now. And you just have to be okay with that. Super important that you put a time frame on that, right? Because I think sometimes people say they're bullish, but they mean they're bullish longer term uh, and not not necessarily, you know, in the here and now. Are you long anything or are you short? It sounds like you're kind of negative on everything. Are you just shorting? Is is, is, is Are shorts the, the positions that you're putting on right now? Is there anything that you're positive yeah, about? Yeah, I don't have any longs right now, but I trade very concentrated. So like usually I have like two to four positions and I just, my time frame is like one week to one month. And so right now I'm just short and I'm going to stay short into next week. And usually I kind of recalibrate like around once a week, I kind of reassess. I don't like reassessing constantly in real time because you can just go insane with the, like the fire hose of information. Yeah. Um, so I kind of try to like recalibrate about once a week. So like I would say deep into next week, I'll be short and then I'll probably, you know, then it just depends on levels and, and things like that. Um, but my overarching thesis all year has been sell rallies in stocks and buy dips in the dollar. And I, that just hasn't changed for me. And that is that is uh, you, that's basically a great way to end this, Brent, because that's like the big takeaway we can we can get from you. And the other thing I'm walking away with, and this was so helpful, and thank you for going a little extra long with us because it really helps wrap up these big big picture things as well as the the sort of underlying you know different asset classes. Um, I'm hearing you also say that despite everything we've seen in the UK, not likely that we're going to see a G10 sovereign debt crisis. Uh, because they central banks have the wherewithal to handle it, even though they're you know maybe sowing the seeds of the next problem, but they'll right. do that, uh, and that uh, it, we're in a bear market. Break yourself of that habit of buying the dip. Uh, U.S. equities, maybe global equities, could be in for a long slog sideways. Uh, that's going to suck. It's going to be painful, and it's it's going to be here for a while. It's like crypto winter meet equity winter. Misery loves company, and that's Absolutely. where we're going to be. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. And, um, you know, just surviving the winter is is the key, right? Yeah. And Bye to do that, you really got to, you know, um, be conservative, not, not be conservative, but just position your risk, which I know you guys are excellent at doing. Brent, this was really a masterclass in trying to sort of take a really complex situation um, and try to sort of settle in and, and cut out some of the noise and really focus on what's important, as you said at the very beginning. So we so appreciate you sharing all your insight with us. All right. Thanks for having me on. It was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for watching. It's been a tough week, a tough quarter, uh, but you know, information is power. So we hope you gained um, some of that from both this interview and the Make or Break series. That's going to continue. Uh, I'll be back on Monday, hopefully with Darius and Weston. I'm catching a flight, so we'll see. Um, hopefully we'll hear from Brent on the other side of Brazil about what he learns down there. Have a great weekend. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.